my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Hey, Mills and Matt, thanks for joining us today, guys. Really appreciate it. Bukar, thanks for joining us, man. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so I think kind of the agenda for today is we're going to talk about Janine's recent Freedom Money episode, episode three, and then we're going to transition on to discussing Abubakar's episode that's dropping tomorrow at noon CT. Um, really looking forward to that one. And yeah, but, but before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to Mills for producing this awesome show. And of course, Matt for, for hosting it as well. And this is all made possible by Bitcoin 2023 and Bitcoin Magazine. For those in the audience, you can get 10% off your tickets. Go to b.tc slash conference and use code freedom. It's going to be a great event in Miami. I think uh, the way we're thinking about this is it's kind of the future of Bitcoin is, is starting here is, you know, there's been so much craziness over the past year. A lot of the leverage has been wiped out. The tourists are gone. And these are going to be the people that are going to help build the future of Bitcoin for many, many years to come. So I think it's going to be a super high signal event. We have some awesome speakers for you guys. And yeah, it should be, should be a great time. So yeah, without further ado, Mills and Janine, I, I, and of course, Odell, I'd love to hear kind of a bit of a rundown of, you know, what the episode that y'all recorded was like. I gave that a listen and I thought there was a lot of good insights into, you know, personal privacy, surveillance, and kind of the, the dangers of convenience and technology. But yeah, we would love to hear y'all's thoughts and any takeaways from that episode who would like to go first well janine I'll, I'll ask you a question that i've been wondering you know the we filmed in may and it's february now what has you know has anything changed or was anything noticeable in rewatching that you know what i think there's obviously there's different things that are happening in the privacy world but was there anything that stood out to you from a you know months later almost a year later no, pretty much all of my opinions are still the same. I'm trying to think of some things that I said. Yeah, I mean, a big focus towards the, I think, the second half of the interview was about privacy for children. And I, I would just say nothing has changed in, in regard to my opinions on that. But since that episode, I've heard from a number of people who I've talked to a number of people who've, who have children and they have those concerns, even if they're not super into privacy. Like that's actually one of the common areas where people start to care more about privacy is when there's children involved, especially their own. So I've actually that's been a common thread of conversation to get people talking about privacy was to talk about their concerns that they have with their children and people feeling like they can photograph them and schools sharing data about them all the time because I, I guess a lot of people seem to think that children are, I mean, they think of other people around them as content fodder often for social media, but especially children seem to be 
seen that way and that's really unfortunate but that's definitely something I'm going to think about more going forward that for people that don't really think about privacy that much if you talk about the effect that it has on their kids and the fact that they're not often given a choice about how much they're online because their parents are just making that choice for them, they start to care about it more. Do you feel like there's a, a guide or a resource or have you done any writing around specific ways that parents can kind of protect their children's privacy and, and kind of a, a checklist? Does that exist? Have you done any of that writing? I haven't done any writing about it, but I have sent resources specifically either for kit to help kids learn about privacy or how to protect themselves in terms of privacy. And I know that there was at least one study done in the UK, which might also be applicable in some ways to the US, but it kind of examined the ways that the like a sample of schools in the UK would um, violate the children's privacy because of the technology they used or because of how they shared information about the kids in ways that wasn't really necessary. Going forward, I think I'll be compiling more of those resources. I definitely think there are quite a few because when it comes to convincing people that people should be allowed to, you know, remove themselves from the internet or not share pictures or share any sensitive information, it's kind of hard to argue with someone when they're talking about their child versus an adult. So that's definitely important. Yeah, I think that is something, especially having the, the cheat sheet for the ways, especially because once, I mean, if you have a kid in a hospital, there's just the paper trail begins. And, you know, obviously, even if you don't have the kid in a hospital, there's still privacy there's just, there's privacy from the beginning. There's privacy, I guess, even with, with pregnancy. Yeah, and in many ways, especially depending on where you live in the U.S. and even other places around the world, in many, in many ways, it's kind of impossible to avoid all leaks. And so I don't, I mean, like I said in the interview, my approach to privacy is to find as many ways as possible to give you more choice in your life in terms of what data you share and, you know, just given the environment, I mean, obviously you should, I would encourage people to fight back against any policies that make their children vulnerable like that, but you can't avoid all of those pressures and all of those scenarios. So as, I mean, as long as you're doing your best and for example, there was an analysis I saw recently, it was like measuring the, the probability of different applications having a ton of vulnerabilities. And I think the, the one that had the highest score in terms of most vulnerabilities was TikTok. So that's definitely an app that you should probably stay away from and probably keep your kids away from, or at least not have installed on a device where it has, you know, where they're using like their legal identity or anything, especially be careful with stuff like that, because that's definitely doing data collection. It's, you know, a lot of social media apps, including Twitter, run on advertising. So their whole business model is collecting information about you to sell you stuff. So yeah, definitely be aware of the ways where you have control and can make a difference. And then just accept the ways that, you know, in many ways, daily life doesn't allow anyone to be perfect in that regard. Yeah, Janine, something that caught my attention in your interview with Matt was your discussion of the conflict between convenience and privacy. Obviously, there's so many tools that are made freely available like TikTok or Twitter, or other social media apps, yet that comes at a cost to one's ability to selectively disclose themselves. And I, I think for me, it was interesting hearing you talk about just how you approach that, that conflict between those two ideas. So like when you're educating people on privacy, like how do you, how do you, I guess, couch those two together? How do you explain kind of the trade-offs there and help people make decisions? Yeah, so the, I mean, the trade-offs for me, I mean, I, I've said this a number of times, but the, the trade-offs for any given person are going to be different. So the trade-offs for me in terms of what am I willing to do to, because when you're doing, you know, when I do, when I do privacy evaluations for people and they're asking me questions, I usually say, okay, you know, I need to get a general picture of what their life looks like and how much risk they face, whether people might be, you know, they might just be dealing with like social media trolling or like actual physical actors trying to break into their house or something. It depends on what the scale of the possible danger or real danger that they're facing is. So the kind of trade-offs that I make 
which if anybody's familiar with the delete Coinbase <laughs> campaign from a couple of years ago, that potentially, at least for me, may involve some kind of pissed off former notorious hackers wanting to maybe get back at me for ruining their multi-million dollar acquisition deal. So that's something I have to consider when I go about my life, but I know a lot of people don't. So I don't, I try to be very careful and not apply the trade-offs that I have to make to everyone. Obviously, you know, if someone is willing to go that far, if they want to, even if they don't face as much risk, that's fine if they choose that. But I'm, I'm always thinking in terms of, you know, how much, how much are you willing to spend? How much time are you willing to spend to go to protect yourself? And how much do you need based on what kinds of threats you're facing? Also, what are some very simple, like free, there, there's so many things that you can achieve just for free with no cost, except for maybe some time or even very little time in the, in the terms of like, you know, browser plugins and things like that to block ads. I, I always start, try to start with the easy stuff that's free and relatively simple to do because in a lot of ways that can have a big effect. For example, if you have a smartphone and you don't feel like you're in a position to get rid of your smartphone completely or leave it at home most of the time, I say that you should get, for one, there's these little audio input blocker devices that you would normally put into the place where like if you had a headphone cord or something, some devices like maybe iPhones don't have that anymore, but nonetheless, if you do, you can plug this little tiny thing into your blocker into your smartphone. And then if if any apps are misbehaving and they're using your microphone without your permission, then they will not be able to hear anything even if they're doing that. It blocks any audio input. So that's something where you can kind of block your smart or limit because they're a lot of smartphones are built with multiple microphones in them so you might have to do some research but you can block a lot of the ability of your smartphone to do you know basic audio recording which a number of apps do just by having this like i think the device costs maybe ten dollars or less um another thing to do is to get a faraday bag which again is can be in the range of like 10 to 30 dollars usually and you just put your phone in the bag whenever you're not using it or you're going somewhere where you don't want there to be a constant record of GPS location. It also blocks other things like Bluetooth, any basically any signals that your phone could possibly receive or send, it blocks that. And that's useful for when you don't need to be using your phone and maybe you, you just want to be offline. And that's something you can get for under $50 and that's something everybody can get. And you're going to then cut down on a lot of the kind of nefarious stuff that a lot of apps do to, for example, track your location, turn on your microphone, things like that. Awesome. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it seems like it's important to understand like cost benefit analysis, understanding your risk is like a really good first step. And then you can decide, you know, what you're willing to undertake to mitigate that. So I think that makes a lot of sense just from a practicality standpoint. And to kind of segue this a little bit more onto the Bitcoin side of things, I know you and Matt talked about anti-money laundering laws as they relate to financial surveillance. And I would just be curious your thoughts on how you see Bitcoin fitting into that. Obviously, in the Bitcoin community, we talk a lot about individual freedom, self-determination, but it seems that, you know, obviously there's many people that participate in seed exchanges. They don't necessarily have privacy measures for when they're sending their Bitcoin. So yeah, I would be curious, like how you approach that perhaps in your life or like what tools and capabilities you would point people towards if they want to try and understand, you know, to what degree they are exposed and then how they can go about mitigating. Yeah. So my opinion on anti-money laundering policies are generally, I mean, this isn't even my opinion. This is based on research that I've done for my newsletter. I've cited studies regarding the effectiveness of anti-money laundering, including from the United Nations. I think it, I think I cited it in the interview. There was a United Nations paper or report about the effectiveness, effectiveness of AML back in 2011. And their conclusion was that strangely compared to, for example, the policies that cut down on drug trafficking, the amount of laundered money that is captured by any of those policies is less than 1%. And that's significantly less than the effectiveness of, you know, anti-drug trafficking. And so their question was, well, wait a second, are the drug traffickers just so much smarter than the money launderers? What's going on here? And my guess would be that, well, I have a lot of guesses of why it's not effective, but the point is that it's not effective for whatever reason. 
And, you know, that's in a system where, you know, <laughs> we don't really have non-KYC for bank accounts anymore. I mean, if you have significant wealth, then you can get that. But that's a small number of people. And maybe that's part of the problem is that the only people who end up getting privacy are the people who have a ton of money and engage in the most corruption. But yeah, so even when you have a most, mostly to fully KYC system, apparently the anti-money laundering rules are not really working. And most most of the people, you know, saying that they're fighting this say, oh, it's cash's fault. And that's hasn't really borne out either because cash has a number of benefits that are outweighed by any costs like that. And so the problem with when AML gets applied to things like Bitcoin is that the people doing the investigations think that they've like they've got the golden goose because they have a, you know, database that anyone a record of all these financial transactions that anyone can download and sift through. And they think that because they have that, that they'll eventually just find all the answers and they'll be able to track money flows perfectly. The problem with that is, as I've talked about a number of times, especially most recently in Prague with my blockchain surveillance talk, a lot of the work that they do, like most of the the overwhelming majority of the work they do, if they have any certainty at all about where coins came from or who owns what coin who owns which coins currently that information is usually tied to you know they have very clear evidence that you know this is an exchange address because the exchange has like published it for example like that's one of the rare instances where they can say with relative certainty like these coins at least come from this entity that doesn't tell them necessarily who, which customer owned the coins, or if they're just owned by the exchange or whatever. But that's like the most amount of certainty I've seen that they can get. Everything else is just guesswork. They're making guesses about why money moves. They're making guesses about who controls which coins at any given time. And given that, you know, all of this stuff can be moved in 10 minutes or less, every 10 minutes or less, it's quite complicated to actually get any concrete evidence of what is happening on the blockchain. And they like to claim otherwise, they like to market themselves as, you know, they can solve investigations, they, their software gets bought by all of these governments and investigators. But at the end of the day, and actually sometimes they're honest about this, including Coinbase's investigators in particular, they wrote a series of blog posts where they said blockchain analysis is more art than science, which I find to be an infuriating statement that, you know, they're trying to put people in jail with art. That doesn't seem like such a great idea. Um, so the thing people have to understand is that when AML gets applied to Bitcoin, it's getting applied to a system where people make the assumption that because they have the data, they have the answers. The problem is there's a lot of interpretation <laughs> that goes into figuring out what that data means. And in a lot of cases, there is not enough information. And that's by design. Bitcoin was designed, as it says in the white paper, to basically give very a very limited amount of information, you know, just the basic necessary details for the transfer to be validated, and that's it. There are some guesses you can make. Obviously, you know, given that I focus on Bitcoin privacy, there's a number of things that you can give away and give hints that a certain transfer is for a certain purpose or that it may belong to a certain person, and that's still important. But at the end of the day, all of the a lot of the work that the people that you're fighting against are doing is guesswork, and it should scare people that people could potentially be put in jail based on guesswork that they even themselves call art and not science. Like at the bare minimum, if their standard does not reach the level of science, then I don't think they should have any authority whatsoever to be putting people in jail. I mean, but there's also certain times where it's pretty cut and dry and then they do throw people in jail, which I feel like is important to mention. I mean, we had a situation where Navalny's team, the main opposition leader in Russia, was accepting donations using Bitcoin and they kept using the same reused address. So any payments that go to that address are obviously going to Navalny's donation fund. So the Putin regime went to Binance and said to Binance, we want to know the identities of every single person on Binance who sent money to this donation fund and Binance just handed it right over. I mean, in that situation, that's just very obvious on chain what happened there mixed with KYC data.
Yeah. So in that instance, that's, like I said, where like an entity is publicly associating themselves and their identity with an address. They're not using fresh address addresses for each donation. They're not offering a way to do donations more private, privately, for example, with reusable payment codes. One of the tools And uh, yeah, the other thing people have to remember is that because of these AML policies, which go back way before Bitcoin, but especially with these exchanges, these banks, these crypto banks are not your friend. By law, the AML rules make the banks basically in an adversarial relationship with you as a customer because their job is, well... They're the, the, the job that the compliance people have is to try to make sure as much as possible to prevent little people, not so much the big people, but little people with less money from doing anything that might get the bank in trouble with the government. So anytime you're using exchange, if there is any reason whatsoever that somebody could use your financial data against you, do not think that the exchange will protect you. Maybe you'll get lucky and maybe some of them will stand up for you if your case has enough, you know, marketable public relations value to them in fighting the case, but do not count on that. You should not consider any exchange to be your friend. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Going in a, a slightly different direction, but I know the, there's been some commentary on your, you know, you choose to cover your face and protect your privacy in a physical way as well. And you are, I mean, Matt's a, a public privacy, you know, his face is very attached, even though he is a privacy advocate. And, you know, you... I really would love to hear, you know, some of the the mo- motivation, but also kind of the trade-offs that you experience as well. I know I saw a comment that you replied to of, you know, it is about being able to live and speak without fear. And one of the things we really wanted for this show, too, is to be able to not only have interviews with people that are comfortable showing their face or, or are face public, so I wondered if there was any anything you had to share or anything you wanted to share in regards to that because I know that's some it's a it's a conversation and it's obviously you know for people without a lot of background maybe not used to seeing people protect their their face identity in in the way that you do intentionally. Yeah, well, I have there I have more than one motivation for not really wanting to either share pictures myself or have pictures taken of me that are shared on social media. I mean, I'm totally, the thing is I'm fine if you have like an instant camera (laughs) because then I know exactly, assuming I trust you not to then take another picture of the instant camera, like that photo exists in that physical format. And, you know, I know who has it and that's fine. So I'm not like afraid of cameras or anything. It's just, I guess I'm, I'm still trying to live in that time where, you know, the people that, knew your face, especially from, you know, multiple angle, multiple angles and multiple different places. The, those were people that you were around regularly that were in your local space. And the only time where anyone anywhere around the world would know your face is if you were super, super famous for whatever reason, like your face was in a, a book that was like distributed worldwide, a newspaper or something. And, you know, the last 20 years, that's really changed where literally everyone on the planet could potentially have their face accessible to anyone anywhere else in the world. And that just seems weird to me. Like if you meet me in person, you will see my face. I don't walk around, you know, with a mask and that entire outfit all the time. I mostly care about being able to protect my identity from being accessible to 
anyone anywhere in the world, including people who might want to harm me. Or I, I, I'm also just not a person who likes to, you know, I, I don't know if I will ever be popular enough to get people approaching me on the street, recognizing me and wanting to talk to me. But I know more than one person who has to deal with that kind of situation. And the one thing that they always say that they wish they would have done differently is that they would have kept their face hidden. So regardless of how popular I get, I don't know, but I'm just basically doing what they all wish they had done in advance in case that ever happens because you know as much as I care about privacy now I bet in the future if that ever happened I would care about it even more if I was in their situation so I'm kind of doing what I tell everyone else to do in general with privacy stuff is to be proactive and for me that's a proactive thing that I want to keep doing making it harder to you know see my entire face of course there are elements of my face that are still in the interview you can see my my eyes and uh, things like that. But, and, and some people would argue I should also cover that up. But again, it's just a matter of what do I think the trade-offs are? Am I worried that someone is going to try and do an iris scan of the video footage somehow? I don't even know if that would work probably. But yeah, I'm given, given that I don't have photos of me and I don't allow pictures to be taken of me, even if someone did do that, they can maybe figure out who I am, but they can't easily follow me around and figure out where I am because there aren't enough photos to show where I am. And yeah, I just, that's, that's something I just prefer to keep private. And I'm, I guess I'm trying to oppose this idea that, that in order to be able to share your views and speak, that, that means that people have to be entitled to your face or entitled to a picture. I don't agree with the idea of assuming that other people should be my content fodder and I don't want to be that to them. So that's just how I choose to participate in public. But of course, I hang out with people all the time and I'm not like that. It's just the context of it being an interview that I knew was going to be distributed. And so that's what I do. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's really been awesome to get the conversations going and the spinoff and just very thankful for, for you guys, you taking the time. And I know Spencer and I were, you know, it's it's been really cool to be able to make content that should be out there in the world and that, you know, it's it's a little difficult to push the needle forward. So thank you so much for being a part of, of the conversation. Yeah, thank you guys as well. Of course, yeah. And uh, I just recommend everyone give Janine a follow. She has a lot of great insights. We also have her episode, Freedom Money, episode three, pinned up in the nest. She and Odell have a a great conversation more in depth on some of the things we've discussed. But yeah, Janine is a cypherpunk journalist and Bitcoin privacy ed educator, kind of bringing these topics more to the forefront. So really appreciate all the work you're doing there. And yeah, I look forward to, to seeing more of that in the future, hopefully. And I guess now I want to kind of transition and bring Abu Bakar into the fold a bit. Abu Bakar is a Nigerian programmer. He's a core contributor, Bitcoin core contributor. Um, and he is the CEO and CTO at Recursive Capital. So Bubakar, his episode will be dropping tomorrow at noon CT. He and Odell are going to have an interview that'll be live on YouTube. We'll be sharing on our Twitter as well. But Abubakar and, and Odell, you know, want to kind of strike up that conversation. What can people expect from you guys tomorrow? Oh, you brother. All right. Thanks for having me. Definitely. And I really appreciate the team Mills and everyone who brought this all together and definitely was... <laughs> It's really an incredible experience to finally meet Odell in person. And I think one thing people should expect from the interview, which, you know, in hindsight seeing is how candid it was. It was definitely one of my favorite conversations. It was pretty, pretty interesting. A lot of things were covered. So all the way from obviously my journey into Bitcoin, all the way up to a lot of things that are happening in Nigeria and kind of what the context should be moving forward in terms of the tools we're building and kind of the general fight really for financial freedom. So it's definitely a lot. It's it's pretty, yeah, it's definitely one of those conversations that I think would be both interesting and insightful. Yeah, awesome. I just wanted to step in and just say it was an honor and a, a privilege to to have the chat with the Bubba Car, and I'm I'm grateful for him to join us. And then it was really interesting because you know, those interviews, most most of the work I do in the space focus on education, content and whatnot gets produced and shipped right away. This interview, all these interviews, you know, we've been They've been in production for six months, seven months. And it's amazing how quickly 
just how much you know life moves at you fast life life is slow but it's fast at the same time and the days following this interview i actually spent a lot of quality time with the bubba car and i i consider us good friends i'm very grateful for that friendship but at the time of the interview we had literally just met each other so just looking at it from that just personal perspective is really interesting yeah i'll ask the same question that i i asked janine but you know nine months later was anything in in watching this episode anything stand out to you not necessarily that you you know have changed but any any hindsight any perspective from the the delay i mean like like matt already mentioned that the space is pretty pretty much fast paced so it was very interesting to see some of the talking points that we i guess we nailed on and narrowed on being highlighted and I guess worked on in the space and shipped. A couple of them obviously is things like Sun Globally, which is integrated with, you know, Bitnob, even Pouch in, in the Philippines. So it's pretty interesting to see people moving more towards using Bitcoin as like a monetary network, really, as opposed to just focusing on the Bitcoin circular economy, which is pretty interesting. Another very, very interesting project that came outside, should I say after the interview was Match and Kuro for sure. Because I think that helped catalyze the intrigue we need for people to start building more Africa-focused solutions. So I definitely look forward to seeing how that kind of shapes up, especially throughout this year. Because another thing that did happen, which was quite significant, was definitely the Ghana conference, which was definitely a huge pleasure to, to be a part of that. Hopefully you guys definitely make it, make it down there. I definitely recommend Matt and some of you guys as well to come over. It was really, really incredible experience. A lot of the things really centered around how we shift the conversation from essentially porting tools that already exist and like services from outside of Africa to make it work within the African context. But that clearly hasn't worked in terms of not only getting that critical mass onto Bitcoin, but justifying just how Bitcoin fits into the daily routine for a lot of people here on the ground. So moving more toward building things that are based on problems that are faced here on the ground is pretty interesting. A recent change definitely worth mentioning given the narrow situation right now here in Nigeria is some of the upgrades and features that were brought up in companies like Bitnob with the virtual USD card. So for context, anyone who's been here in Nigeria definitely knows the the issues we face with regards to online payments in general. Even if you have like a, a dollar-based card here, it's pretty much almost useless in terms of the actual places you're able to spend. So Companies like Bitnob have made it possible for you to actually spend the USD using using Bitnob itself. So seeing a lot of these solutions prop up based on use cases that are uniquely African, I think is pretty interesting. And obviously moving forward, I think another thing that we need to focus on, this is definitely outside of the conversation we had, but I think is worth highlighting is trying to ensure that we consider resilience first, especially when we're building for Africa. Because at the end of the day, we're one of the regions in the world that have a lot of sanctions, especially when it comes to, I guess, economic activities, specifically online. So I think the whole promise of Bitcoin will only be useful and practical for us if it still remains decentralized and permissionless. So I definitely think that's one of the pretty more interesting things that have happened. And obviously all the, all the work in Gala too has been interesting to see, because looking back at the time, we were still doing the first cohort. And it's pretty interesting to see them graduate and we're already into our second cohort. And some of them are great folks like Vlad, who has been one of the pioneers of the BitDev community in Kenya. So it's been interesting to see how they've already hugely contributed into the space. And obviously, he's a BDK developer as well. He's the first recipient of the Gala, the B-Trust grant for developers. So yeah, a ton of stuff that definitely come out. I'll just leave it there. But yeah, I think those are one of the major highlights. It's awesome to hear how much you're, I mean... I gave Gigi a hard time because in his episode, he's like, yeah, I'm going to write a book. I'm like, well, he's like, I'm still, I'm, I'm going to write it. I'm writing it. But I just, I told him I was going to keep, you know, pressing on him to, to kind of make it, make it come about. He's been busy, but it's cool to hear how much you have done, you know, to already have a second class. That's, that's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. And to kind of segue this a bit, but I think it's been really fascinating to see this confluence between i know hrf hosted the oslo freedom forum and it's been really cool seeing the work of alex gladstein kind of take center stage as it relates to human rights around the world i'm not sure how y'all feel about this but it, it seems like privacy can be and and general freedom can be a bit of a tough tough sell there's so much competition in the airspace you know things like entertainment or you know the story of the day it kind of 
things like this can kind of take a back seat in the public consciousness. But it seems like people are beginning to understand the value and necessity of freedom as it relates to their finances. And I mean, we're seeing that on the ground in Nigeria currently with, with the Naira and, and the situation there. So Abubakar, I was wondering if you could provide for our audience a little bit more context, like what has that situation been like on the ground there? And how do you see Bitcoin fitting in to kind of provide, provide this permissionless financial medium on the side? Yeah, we'd just be curious if you have any updates for, for our audience on the, the state of things as they are. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where things just keep getting worse <laughs> on that side. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's really a serious situation. But in general, since we spoke, things got a lot worse, especially given some people's wealth was essentially just wiped out overnight. Because one thing people, I guess, often overlook really is those who use cash the most are definitely the unbanked. I mean, it's it's one of those realities that is pretty straightforward, but it has a lot of implications. So for context, I think late last year is when they decided to do the narrow redesign, which is pretty routine according to like laws here in Nigeria. It was supposed to, I think, updated every eight years, I believe. So they started that process. And to be honest, the rollout hasn't been great at all. In fact, it's been pretty horrible in that the supply itself of the new notes has been way below the demand for the new notes itself. And obviously, one of the factors is we're in an election cycle. So a couple of the reasons why they brought up the, I guess, the idea to do the redesign right now, given the climate, is to kind of curb corruption. Because their justification is that when there are fewer bills in circulation, then there's less likelihood of individual pop- individual politicians actually bribing people to get their votes. But what we've definitely seen or will likely see is that would not necessarily be the case given a lot of these rich folks, like to Jenny's point, even outside of just having the ability to have better privacy in general, they have a lot more economic tools available for them. So whereas you're stopping maybe just one aspect, which is having physical Naira, which to be honest, the Naira isn't exactly a great currency to begin with. A lot of them have access to physical greenbacks. And outside of that too, they, they have pretty much other means of actually making these transactions regardless to bribe individuals. And they'll likely still do the same. So the current issue really now is a lot of the people that are unbanked already are basically unable to have their finances still in check or their wealth that they've gathered so far, given they don't have a lot of banks close by for them to even exchange these notes for the new ones. And at the same time, even those that are able to do so don't necessarily have access to these notes because, again, the supply is super, super fixed now, given how people have rushed this, given the timeline that they have. And the issue really is we've seen a rapid change from being quite a cash-dominant economy, I'd say, to moving more towards a cashless system. And the truth of the matter is the Inera isn't exactly in wide wide use and circulation as they'd like people to believe. And the ironic part is the Inera doesn't necessarily even have great fungibility. <laughs> As you meet an average person, you can't even send them the Inera because they frankly wouldn't accept it. So already that is busted on that end. And with regards to the new note and the old note, a lot of people are resorting to things like the point of sales devices to kind of reload their bank accounts. That's if they do have them. So it's been pretty rough to see the lack of tools that are available for us to be able to move towards the cashless system. And one of those people, I I think this is one of the insights I definitely got from individuals like Janine, that you definitely need cash so long as you care about privacy at the end of the day. Because it's not just one of those antiquated means for people to make economic, I guess, using an activity. I think it's definitely one of those things where we need to still protect and ensure that Bitcoin is at a stage where it's able to onboard individuals and still maintain these things like privacy in general. So yeah, the issue is definitely horrible, but I think it provides an opportunity for us to really orange pill and onboard the next thousands, couple of hundred thousands of Bitcoiners because at the end of the day, these sort of issues are what brings to light how fragile the existing systems are. So I think the situation is really to our own advantage in terms of a Bitcoin context. Yeah, well said. I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin community understand the dynamic between the periphery of the financial system and the core, where the periphery is going to be the most vulnerable to these types of shocks, those that need this technology to be able to protect themselves. And yeah, I would just be curious to hear what that education process has been like. Like for me here in the United States, it's a little bit difficult 
to introduce someone to Bitcoin who's never heard of it or never interacted with it and to get them to understand the value proposition. But I would imagine in Nigeria and in the developing world, it seems that that value proposition is a lot more clear when you have, you know, this rollout of the, the new paper notes, kind of this forcing of the CBDC in Nigeria. Do you find that people are, how, yeah, how do people react when you talk to them about Bitcoin? Are they receptive to it? Do they understand the need? And it, it seems like, you know, if they can see that this solves their problem in the immediate term, it would be a much easier onboarding process and perhaps a smoother orange pill going down. So yeah, how, how's that experience been for you? Yeah, it's been pretty interesting, especially given the longer time horizon. So since I got involved with this space all the way to now and how some of the sentiment has changed for the better, in my opinion, like in the initial phases, a lot of the challenges were around tooling. I mean, that still exists to a certain extent, but I can definitely say a lot more tools are readily available for people to use Bitcoin on a daily, even here in Nigeria. And I think that really helps with convincing people because, again, at the end of the day, the only way people are going to want to onboard onto Bitcoin is if they see it really does solve problems for their day to day. They really don't care about all the fancy tech or the fact that it's super revolutionary. The, the main convincing argument for them is that at the end of the day, this is still your money. No one has control over it. You're able to send this globally, instantly and cheaply, which frankly, no other system in the world or even in history has been able to do that. So a lot of the conversations right now have been, okay, how do I use Bitcoin? As opposed to before where it's like, you know, Bitcoin isn't exactly real money. Because a lot of people, I guess, have, they're more conscious of the fact that even the, the actual Naira and like Nigerian bank accounts that you have, or even generally bank accounts, is pretty much just numbers on databases that are shared from this, like the central banks all across to all the other banks. So they they pretty much have an idea of what exactly we mean by like digital money in general. And due to the rise of stable coins to here, people are starting to open up to the idea of my money is not exactly physical, but at the end of the day, I have somewhat control over it. I say somewhat because for a lot of them using stable coins, they do so through like centralized means. So it's pretty much not as, I guess, as useful as possible, but it does serve the, the I guess, the function of protecting their, I guess, their wealth in general. And it's not facing inflation or any sort of large price swings. So right now, really, the conversation hasn't been exactly stacking sats, which is kind of the long-term goal. Because the truth is, people, a lot of people don't have savings to begin with. So the idea of stacking sats doesn't exactly work for them. And it's more so about letting the sats flow. This is kind of one of the major insights we got, even from talking with folks like Femi, who's running, who's the lead at Gala. One thing that we've definitely discovered is a lot of people here, frankly, just care about making ends meet, which involves a lot of spending of sats if we were to translate into the Bitcoin realm. So all of the information and like orange pilling here has been okay. If you're the type of person that doesn't necessarily have a bank account, there are tools like Matron Career that allow you to leverage a lightning network. If you're the type who does have a bank account and you're used to like some of these more common Nigerian fintechs and there are companies like Bitnob that allow for you to be able to use like Bitcoin on a daily, whether it's utility bills, having virtual USD cards, all that kind of fancy stuff that you're able to do, but in, in a better medium, given the fact that you're, you're doing so on Bitcoin. So I think a lot of it has to do with letting people gain access to tools that they're able to, frankly, just spend sats as, as much as they're able to move the majority of their wealth into Bitcoin. That way, a lot of these shocks, economically speaking, don't necessarily affect them. Because you think about it, if a lot of people held the majority of their money in Bitcoin, a lot of the issues with the network wouldn't necessarily affect them on a daily, assuming obviously points where people are able to spend their Bitcoin does exist. So yeah, I think really it's been interesting to see the evolution. And I think a lot more people continue to be receptive given the economic challenges we face. Love it. Thanks for sharing that. That's that was super interesting. And glad to hear that, you know, your work is resonating with people there on the ground. And I guess, Matt, to bring you into this, what, what can people expect for from your conversation with Abubakar that'll be releasing tomorrow? I would just say, I mean, I, I don't want to tell people what to expect. I'm curious on all of your feedback after you listen to it and let us know what you think about it. But the easiest way to look up all the episodes is to just search Freedom Money on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, this this project, I mean, huge shout out to Mills, also to Aaron, who's at Cinemuck on Twitter. Aaron did all the the filming and editing after the fact. Obviously couldn't do it with, without either of them and all the great guests that joined. But uh, you know, this project in general was very different for me. High quality cameras, long form, 
you know, release it to a more mainstream audience. So it's an iterative process. I'd love to do more on this focus. So the, the more feedback I can get from people, the better. And hopefully this will be the first of many recorded conversations I have with both Abubakar and Janine. Yeah, the hope has been, and I know, you know, Gigi wearing a pillowcase or, or Janine having, you know, her face covered, it might not be the easiest sell for a normie audience, but the hope with a lot of these episodes is that they are talking more about freedom and how Bitcoin factors into that. And the hope being that they're shareable, they're, they're something you can send to your friends, family, coworkers, whoever that, you know, that might already have a value and priority of freedom, but maybe doesn't exactly know how Bitcoin factors in. And I think, I think Matt does a really great job bringing it, bringing the two together. And the mixture of the six guests is, you know, some more in the privacy advocacy, some more in the human rights advocacy, some more in, you know, Bitcoin product development. So I think there's a big range, but we, we do absolutely want feedback but also really would love for these to be a tool for these shows and episodes to be a tool that you can start a conversation with someone and you know watch with a friend or you know have have a a dialogue you know beyond even what's in the episode yeah share with your friends and family and then get me their feedback that's what i'm really curious about but i think all these conversations are really special so definitely listen to them if you haven't yeah i totally agree it's been a it's been a pleasure to watch these. I mean, the production quality is super high. The conversations are longer form and in depth. They really get into the the nuts and bolts of things. And yeah, I hope to see more content like this become popular as well. Obviously, Freedom Money is a great show, but I, I think that this just has so much room to run as far as people understanding what the impediments to their freedom are and what they can do to protect that. And yeah, I think like Bitcoin Magazine, we love supporting content like this. I think it's been, for me, just awesome to see Mills run with this. She does a great job organizing these conversations and has been, you know, a big advocate for these types of things. So personally, it's been great to watch. I'm really happy to be able to chat with you all on this topic and help support too. So yeah, appreciate the work that all of y'all are doing. And I guess to kind of wrap things up, Mills, do you have any any parting words for us or Janine, Matt, Abubakar, anything you want to leave the audience with? I know Matt has his, his finger over the button telling people to stay humble and stack sats as well. <laughs> well. I would add to your, you know, final, final ask of just, you know, if anyone has anything that is coming up that they've been working on that they're excited about and just anything, you know, you want to want to share. We keep an eye out for my final thought. I'm still kind of on the topic of CVDCs and their deployment and all the issues. For anyone who hasn't heard, I'm going to be on a team of people that is researching CVDCs and building an online resource supported by HRF this year to, you know, collect data and present that to the public. And I believe there's consensus on the team that I'm on that we're going to offer a secure and private way for people to reach out to us with with their perspective, with data. So when that is up and running, I hope that anybody who is living in a country where, whether, you know, in a country like the United States that is kind of, in general, it seems reticent to adopt a CBDC for a number of reasons, or or the EU, which seems to be going in that direction, or somewhere like Nigeria, which has already implemented something. We want to get your feedback and get your perspective. And just to close off as well, like I said in the beginning, first of all, thanks again for everyone involved with this. It was really, for anyone who hasn't seen any of the episodes, they should definitely go and check it out. It's one of those things where, like, like you're alluding to, it's really high quality. And I think the conversations are very, very substantive. So there's definitely, like like Matt said, there's going to be a lot of things that you could pick out and showcase to other people that are pretty much interested in Bitcoin or don't exactly have like a clear justification of why they should get started into Bitcoin or what the whole, I guess, buzz is about Bitcoin or the difference and why it's like almost cult-like when it comes to the focus that people have in the Bitcoin space. Yeah, it was pretty, yeah, again, it was really incredible to meet. Even Janine, it was, it was a pretty interesting encounter. I, <laughs> And yeah, seeing an actual anonymous Bitcoiner is pretty, it's pretty surreal, especially when you find out that it's actually them. So it was really incredible. But yeah, the conversations were really nice. I think I gained a lot more perspective from Oslo all the way up to Ghana and till now. And just in terms of what people should watch out for, I think on the recursive side, so since the interview went up, or I guess it's going to go up tomorrow, 
we obviously increased the number of portfolio companies to include great projects like Fetty, who's working on pretty interesting stuff around Bitcoin custody, which should be very, very relevant, especially to people like farmers that already have existing trust models, which it's best for them to do that within the context of a Bitcoin ecosystem as opposed to like a centralized exchange. And even on the Sonoda side, we're able to have recurrent payments on over the Lightning Network for things like energy. It's pretty interesting. So yeah, definitely watch out for couple of things that we'll be we'll be announcing throughout the year from recursive gala is taking off way faster than i'd say any of us expected in terms of obviously the the net positive for the entire continent is pretty interesting to see how they go all the way from yeah you know they know some things about bitcoin through the study groups all the way to working at great bitcoin companies and even working on open source projects so i definitely say watch out to see the next cohort and the incredible things they're going to be building Outside of that, I, I definitely say um, obviously things around B-Trust and kind of the work that we'll be doing moving forward to, especially throughout the year. And more specifically for the Nigerians in the space, so just to put it out there, obviously I'm super biased given I am a Nigerian, but I'm very, very much bullish on Nigeria as being like the, the bastion for Bitcoin development moving forward in the next few years. We have a ton of talent. There are a ton of incredible projects that will be coming out as the years go by. And I think we're going to lead the charge given the fact that we have a lot of the problems, frankly, that Bitcoin is trying to solve. So I think a lot of our solutions will be easily translatable globally and we'll have that sort of resilience that we need where everyone is protected and all the rights are, are kept in place moving forward, especially as we're going into more cashless societies globally. So I definitely say watch out for a lot of the development. And again, just to close off with this, I think for a lot of people here in Nigeria, I've gotten this complaint, especially from the dev side, is there aren't exactly a lot of tutorials about how to run like a coin node in Africa, for example. And I think we have the opportunity now to explore that given we have the Blockstream satellite receiver, which is pretty interesting to see how that plays off in terms of, you know, potentially if we do move towards a, a world where some of the telcos here become very hostile to Bitcoiners, then what internet infrastructure do we use for us to still keep, I guess, ourselves within the Bitcoin ecosystem? So it should be interesting to see work around that. And obviously the fact that we have Starlink now should be really interesting to see given the use case here for us is pretty much what I say, like well, well fit glove, given the fact that a lot of people in the rural areas already are unbanked. So it should be interesting to see how they could become banked through Bitcoin using some sort of internet infrastructure. So I definitely say watch out for all, all those things throughout the year. You can see a lot of interesting things, even on the mining side too. So definitely we don't want to, obviously you can't disclose everything, but yeah, just keep an eye out on Nigeria and you're going to see a lot of incredible things coming out of out of this part of the world. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's super exciting. I look forward to seeing those developments coming, coming forth. Odell, you want to take us out of here with a stay humble and stack sets? Appreciate you all. Stay humble, stack sets. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.